the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. I'm so looking forward to talking with Stephen Pick. He's executive director of Journey Theater. They present uh, live theater. They're changing lives. Uh, they're celebrating their 18th season of theater for kids, by kids. We're going to tell you about uh, the ministry they do in our communities. They have uh, uh, work that they do in Portland and Beaverton, two locations in Vancouver. He'll join us in the five o'clock hour. So looking forward to that. Well, flood warnings remain in effect for rivers affecting Clackamas, Marion, Lane, Benton and Lynn counties. Clackamas River at Estacada is affecting Clackamas County. Coastal Fork of the Willamette River in Goshen affecting Lane County. The Sandiam River at Jefferson is affecting Lynn and Marion counties. Mohawk River near Springfield is affecting Lane County. And Long Tom River at Monroe is affecting Benton and Lane counties. Flooding in so... Oh, I'm doing a live radio show. I look up and one of my coworkers brings in his little baby and I can't go on. Hi, Willa. Hi, baby Willa. Okay, this is like the most unprofessional thing I've ever done. And Justin happens to be my supervisor. This is really bad, but uh, I can't help it. So I apologize, but there you have it. We were talking about flooding, and then the baby appears. Anyway, the Clackamas River is expected to reach minor flood stage near Estacada on Tuesday. Well, that's today. Willamette River is expected to reach flood stage near Corvallis this afternoon, crest about six feet above flood stage by Wednesday morning. Lane County may be dealing with the worst of the flooding, we're told. The coastal fork of the Willamette spilled over its banks on Monday, and that prompted Level 3 uh, evacuations, and that is go. Residents of the Riverstone Mobile Home Park in Cottage Grove and people living in the floodplain of the Willamette and uh, Roe Rivers uh, were forced to leave their homes. These are our neighbors right here in the state. The Army Corps of Engineers is causing some of the problems in Lane County. They released water from a dam system east of Cottage Grove. And officials say the um, Darina Reservoir is uh, overwhelmed by the rainfall totals, and if the reservoir overflows, it could cause even more Damage. Well, longtime residents haven't seen flooding like this since 1996, they're saying. On Sunday in Estacada at Milo McIver State Park, the Clackamas River was just a little more than a foot from flood level and moving fast. On Sunday in Junction City, people were also preparing for possible flooding. One rancher moved all of his horses just to be safe. And in Lebanon, people could... Um, couldn't move fast enough. Firefighters there had to do two water rescues on Sunday. The Lebanon Fire Department, the battalion chief Nick Tyler said firefighters had to rescue two people and a dog. Crews think they were homeless and camping near Gill's Landing uh, on the South Santiam River. Crews had to use ropes and a raft to save one man and a jet ski with a rescue sled to save another and his dog. Well, that wasn't the only problem in the area, though. Waterloo Campground was evacuated because of flooding on Sunday. So these are our neighbors here in the state of Oregon. Uh, certainly keep them in your prayers and listen up for opportunities uh, to help them recover once the water has receded. And we hope and pray that will be fairly soon. I was driving along the uh, 
uh, the freeway earlier today, and I looked over at the Willamette and thought, man, it looks awfully high. I didn't realize, yeah, it, it is. And it's uh, reached flood stage in some areas. Well, taking a look at uh, headline news, Attorney General uh, William Barr was grilled by Democratic lawmakers about his plan to release a redacted version of the Mueller report instead of the full report to the public. And um, uh, he defended his handling of the special counsel's Russia investigation when he appeared before um, uh, before them on Capitol Hill for the first two days of testimony today, first of two days. Uh, He first testified before the House Appropriations Committee, Justice, Science and Related Agencies Subcommittee, whose panel consists of seven Democrats and four Republicans and is chaired by Representative Jose Serrano out of New York. On Wednesday, he's going to be the uh, in the hot seat before the subpanel of the Senate Appropriations Committee, chaired by Senator Lindsey Graham. Lawmakers uh, may also question him about the Justice Department's legal challenge to Obamacare. Senator Chuck Grassley said uh, yesterday that Democrats pushing for the release of Mueller's full report should also insist on making public all information related to the Justice Department's investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, while Secretary of State and other controversies dating back to the Obama administration. What we did here was uh, from several Democrats who uh, pretended as though the report is not going to be released, that we'll have no way of verifying the four-page summary um, it was really quite remarkable, some of what was being said. Nonetheless, uh, the attorney general did make it clear uh, that the report will be released in less than a week. So it won't be sufficient. The redactions which are required by law will be complained about. There was a lot of disingenuous complaining about the fact that there were going to be redactions, which is required by law. It certainly certainly played well to the public, but it was uh, essentially a waste of time. Nonetheless, the report will be released. Uh, that has always been the case. And Until it's actually read, I suppose we'll just have to wait and listen. Well, now that Kirsten Nielsen is out of Homeland, out as Homeland Security Secretary and President Trump has replaced her with a tough cop in U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Kevin McLeanan. Uh, as acting secretary, there's debate over whether the shakeup will make any difference in combating the illegal immigration crisis at the border. Now, the truth is, the way the rules are written, the laws passed by Congress, there's very little that can be done. It's not a mystery what needs to happen. It is uh, impossible to do much of what should happen. On uh, Monday, the Federalist senior editor, Molly Hemingway, she noted that while Nielsen stepped down, the problem wasn't her performance on her job, but the performance of Congress and its inability to address policies that incentivize human trafficking. Meanwhile, House Intelligence Committee ranking member Devin Nunez filed a $150 million lawsuit against the McClatchy uh, company and others on Monday, alleging that one of the the news agency's reporters conspired with a political operative to derail his oversight work into the Hillary Clinton campaign and Russian election interference. The filing um, revealed he would send eight criminal referrals to the Justice Department this week concerning purported surveillance abuses by federal authorities during the Russian probe, false statements to Congress and other matters. In March, Nunez filed a similar $250 million lawsuit alleging defamation against Twitter and one of its users, Republican consultant Liz Mayer. Now, one wonders when they find the time to do the people's business, but there's so much else to do. I suppose they don't have time. And Representative Eric Swalwell, a Democrat out of California, an outspoken critic of the president, officially entered the 2020 White House race during his Monday appearance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Now, think back 10 years, 15 years. Would you make an announcement? Would we expect to hear a presidential contender make an announcement on a late night 
comedy talk show. Well, the 38-year-old four-term congressman is a member of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Intelligence Committee, which for years has made headlines over its investigation of Russian influence in the U.S. elections and federal surveillance. I suppose when you have a significant percentage of the American population that gets its news, in quotes, from a late-night comedy talk show, I suppose it's altogether appropriate these days. Meanwhile, voting has begun and most likely ended in the Israeli elections as the country decides whether longtime Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu remains in power. Polling stations opened at 7 a.m. local time today with exit polls expected at the end of voting at 10 p.m. That's Eastern time, clouded by a series of looming corruption indictments. Netanyahu is seeking a fifth term in office, which would make him Israel's longest ever serving leader. He faces a stiff challenge from retired military chief Benny Gantz, whose blue and white party has inched ahead of Netanyahu's Likud in the polls. It's been very close from reports earlier in the day. I'm sure we'll have an announcement tomorrow as to the outcome. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And we promise there will be no further baby interruptions. I don't get to see this one very often, so I was overcome. By the way, portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. We're winding our way through some of the headlines from the day. Uh, Former Desperate Housewives star Felicity Huffman agreed on Monday to plead guilty in the college admissions cheating scandal that uh, has entangled wealthy parents throughout the country. One name that was noticeably absent from the list of 14 defendants who agreed to enter guilty pleas was fellow actress Lori Laughlin, a risk that uh, may hurt the Fuller House star's chances of cutting a favorable deal down the line. More on that in just a few moments. Uh, but she was named earlier today with further charges. Well, now that Virginia is the um, way to close out a season. Well, let me restate that. Virginia, that's a way to close out a season. Led by um, DeAndre Hunter and his NBA ready game, the Cavaliers turned themselves into national champions Monday night, holding off uh, Texas Techs for an 85-77 overtime win. Okay, I'm not really into basketball. I thought I should mention it, but I'm, I prefer football. I don't watch baseball. I, I, I like football. So there you have it. That's as good as it's going to get. By the way, it was a scintillating victory that came 388 days after Virginia became the first number one seed to lose to a 16th seed team. I have no idea what that means, but I think our basketball listeners are going to be very, very impressed. Well, a U.S. judge decided on Monday to block the Trump administration's policy of returning asylum seekers to Mexico as they wait for an immigration court to hear their case. Now, let me explain what the, what's behind this. The law does permit you to return um, asylum seekers to the country from which uh, they originated if that country is across the border. If, for example, they'd come from Mexico, you can require that they remain in Mexico, that they're detained there until decisions are made. But if they cannot be returned to the country of origin, then they um, are permitted to stay in country. The judge, in fact, expressed some frustration that uh, his hands were tied because of the law. And, of course, that's the way it should be with judges. Well, Judge Richard Seaborg in San Francisco granted a request on behalf of 11 asylum seekers from Central America and legal advocacy groups to halt the practice while their lawsuit moves forward. But he held off on enforcing his decision until Friday to give the government a chance to ask an appeals court for a review. So he ruled, but it won't be effective until Friday. And President Trump is removing U.S. Secret Service Director Randolph Tex Ailes. 
Uh, from his position, the Secret Service recently came under scrutiny for its handling of an incident in which a Chinese national was allowed to enter President Trump's Mar-a-Lago club. The woman who alternately claimed to be there to swim and attend an event for Chinese-American business leaders was eventually determined to be carrying two Chinese passports and a device uh, containing malware. Once they went to her hotel room, there was much more incriminating stuff as well, but they've yet to file charges uh, or mentioned the uh, word spy in their investigation. Well, the Washington Examiner points out that President Trump announced that Kevin McLeanan will be taking over as acting secretary. We'll tell you more about who he is. By law, the secretary role should be filled by current undersecretary Homeland Security for Management, Claire Grandy, unless her employment were to be terminated. So there's some question about that. But Barack Obama also had a penchant for exploiting interim appointments, and any president who takes advantage of them should be rebuked. Now, again, uh, the Republicans aren't growling about it because, well, he's a Republican president. The Democrats are busy doing other things, but they would be growling about it if they took a moment and gave it some thought because, Uh, This is another opportunity to criticize the president. Democrat 2020 update. California Representative Eric Swalwell is the latest Democrat to jump into the race for president. He's the 18th Democrat uh, to um, join the race for the party's 2020 presidential nomination. One of the key issues for the California Democrat is highlighting um, uh, one important to young voters in particular, gun safety, because everybody had already taken up all of the other issues. Swalwell has also taken on the National Rifle Association. By the way, their membership is greater this year than it's ever been in the history of the organization. He's proposing an assault weapons ban. Meanwhile, Senator Cory Booker on Monday introduced a bill that would study the possibility of reparations for descendants of slaves, embracing a push that recently has caught the interest of fellow 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. The measure is a Senate companion to a bill introduced in the House of Representatives on or rather in January by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas, which, if passed into law, would set up a commission to study the impact of slavery and continued discrimination against black Americans and make recommendations on reparation proposals for the descendants of slaves. I have a lot I uh, can and will say about that at some point in the future. Three U.S. service members were killed by an improvised explosive device on Monday near Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. The Taliban claimed responsibility for the attack through the group's spokesperson. The insurgent group claimed the attack was conducted by a suicide vehicle-borne IED. Uh, There have been four other U.S. troop deaths in Afghanistan so far this year. Those deaths occurred during combat operations in more remote Afghan provinces. And federal authorities have charged a Maryland man they believe was putting a ram of uh, stolen uh, truck into pedestrians or was planning to do so at the National Harbor Waterfront Development in Maryland, just outside the nation's capital. The Justice Department announced yesterday Rondell Henry, 28, of Germantown, Maryland, has been charged with interstate transportation of a stolen vehicle. But in court documents, authorities allege a much more sinister intention. According to authorities, Henry claims to to law enforcement that he was inspired by the Islamic State when he stole the U-Haul, looking to use it as a weapon. And a woman was arrested on Friday after authorities discovered she sent a threatening letter to Senator Susan Collins' home in October. The letter, which was uh, sent to Collins' husband, Thomas Daffron, was reportedly laced with ricin. Because it was mailed in October, one can only conclude the suspect was responding to uh, Collins' uh, vote in favor of Supreme Court nominee Brett 
Kavanaugh. And on this day in 2003, Iraqis celebrate the collapse of Saddam Hussein's regime, beheading a toppled statue of their longtime ruler in downtown Baghdad and embracing American troops as liberators. And on this day in 1913, the first game is played of at Ebbets Field, the newly built home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who lose to the Philadelphia Phillies 1-0. to zero. One of the reasons I have a heart, I like playing baseball. I don't really like watching it because it's very slow. One to zero, whole game, professional. And on this day in 1865, Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrenders his army to Union Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. Thank you, Jesus, because my life would be really different if that had not happened, among other things. Well, Attorney General uh, William Barr testified, as I mentioned earlier, before a House subcommittee today, another set tomorrow, marking his first appearance before lawmakers on Capitol Hill since releasing his four-page memo on the key findings of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Now, he said he wrote this in collaboration with Mueller, at least under consultation. But many on the committee suggested that they could not believe that he didn't alter the findings in some way, as if the report itself was not going to be in their hands in, according to uh, the attorney general, less than a week. Well, the official purpose of that meeting, which was conducted by the House Appropriations Committee, Justice, Science and Related Agencies Subcommittee, was to discuss the attorney general's fiscal year 2020 spending request for the Department of Justice. However, top Democrats grilled the attorney general on his Mueller report summary, making all kinds of accusations. We'll see what the report actually says. Former FBI Director James Comey included a slew of sensitive and classified information in a series of comprehensive personal memos, including not only the details of his conversations with President Trump, but also the code name and true identity of a confidential source, according to a court-ordered filing by the Justice Department late yesterday. The filing acknowledges that Comey maintained a far more detailed and lengthy private papers trail uh, than was previously known, and that federal investigators apparently hoped to use Comey's uh, 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 contemporaneous secret writing to test the truthfulness of Trump's comments as part of the then-ongoing obstruction of justice inquiry. Comey meticulously outlined foreign intelligence information obtained from the, and through rather, the key human source information about whether the FBI initiated coverage through the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or FISA on a particular individual, relevant sources and methods used by the FBI in its investigation, as well as information concerning the president's foreign policy decision making, according to uh, DOJ. All of that information is currently and properly classified, the department noted. Additionally, Comey's memos included documentation of non-public interactions between specific foreign governments and officials and U.S. government officials, disclosing those details the department insisted could reasonably be expected to affect the United States' relationship with those countries. Well, on Sunday, House Intelligence Committee ranking member Devin Nunez announced a series of criminal referrals related to leaks and lies to Congress by a number of unnamed individuals and specifically singled out what he called the horrific leaks of the private conversations between Trump and the leaders of Australia and Mexico. Again, I don't know how they find time to do the people's business. There's so much else to do. We're going to take a break, but you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about one border official who says the caravan size influx of migrants arriving every week in Rio Grande isn't just people coming from Central America, but from other continents as well. We'll tell you more about that and much more in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, about a quarter after the hour, we'll talk with Stephen Pick. A very impressive young man. He is the executive director of Journey Theater. And if you're not familiar with this ministry and the work they do, you need to make a point to listen. Uh, that'll be about 5.15 in the 5 o'clock hour, which is redundant because I already said 5.15. So there you have it. It's that whole baby thing. Seeing the child just got me all Twitter-pated. That's what happened. Well, according to a Border Patrol official, a caravan-sized influx of migrants is flooding across the border each week in just a single sector. A top Border Patrol officer told lawmakers on Tuesday this is the latest indicator of the growing migration crisis on the southern border. Much media attention is focused on caravans coming across from Central America. The Rio Grande Valley Sector Chief Patrol Agent Rodolfo uh, said at a Senate Homeland Security Committee hearing, but the fact is the RGV is receiving caravan equivalent uh, numbers every seven days. Well, Mr. Karish uh, said his sector has apprehended people from 50 different countries, including China, Bangladesh, Turkey, Egypt, and Romania. People are traveling across hemispheres rather, to attempt to illegally enter the United States using the same pathways as the Central Americans. He noted that Border Patrol has apprehended more families illegally crossing the border in the first five months of fiscal year 2019 than during all of fiscal year 2018. During the first five months, Customs and Border Protection apprehended more than 76,000 migrants across the border in February and said it was on track to apprehend more than 100,000 in March. In the Rio Grande Valley alone, he says that at current pace, uh, they would uh, have to have more than 260,000 apprehensions in his sector by the end of fiscal 2019. There were 162,000 in uh, uh, last year. He also said that his agents apprehend on average 1,000 people a day. His testimony is the latest warning from officials that there is an escalating crisis at the border. The president, who declared a national emergency at the border in February, traveled to the border on Friday and repeated his warning that he's prepared to close the border if Congress and Mexico do not act to close loopholes and stop migrant flows, though he was uh, has indicated such an action is not imminent. In fact, he gave a year for Mexico Uh, to work toward that end. Well, last year, the Obama-era Border Patrol chief Mark Morgan told senators on Thursday that the U.S. is experiencing a crisis at the southern border at the magnitude never seen in modern times. Border Patrol agent Karish on Tuesday gave a similar dour assessment, saying that in 30 years as an agent, I have never witnessed the conditions we are currently facing on the southwest border. Now, much of what needs to be done cannot be done because of the way the laws are constructed and unwillingness on the part of Congress to resolve the issue because, quite frankly, it's useful politically uh, when it's unresolved. But nonetheless, there is a crisis on the southern border. Well, as the Democratic Party tracks increasingly left on immigration, some key figures are moving to reset the rhetoric in their own ranks. With Senator Bernie Sanders taking a stand against open borders policy and former President Barack Obama highlighting the importance of immigrants assimilating into their host nation's culture. Obama said at a town hall event in Berlin on Saturday, I worry sometimes when as we think about how to deal with the immigration issue, we think that any moves toward assimilation of the existing newcomers to the existing culture is somehow a betrayal or a denial of people's heritage or, um, 
or what we um, or what have you before arguing that if you're going to have a coherent, cohesive society, then everybody has to have some agreed upon rules. And there's going to have to be some accommodations that everybody makes. And that includes the people who are newcomers, end quote. Again, President, uh, former President Obama speaking at a town hall in Berlin. Well, he also defended the importance of immigrants learning their host nation's language, saying, should we want to encourage newcomers to learn the language of the country they are moving to? Of course. Does that mean they can never use their own language? No, of course. It doesn't mean that, he said. But it's not racist to say, ah, if you're going to be here, then you should learn the language of the country uh, you just arrived in. Well, part of the importance of that is assimilation gives you far greater opportunities than an inability or unwillingness to do so. While no top Democrat has explicitly argued against immigrants assimilating into the United States, the president's comments reflect an increasing wariness that progressives may be uh, reflexively labeling um, mainstream views on immigration as racist, as some 2020 Democrats embrace far-reaching um, positions, such as extending Social Security for illegal immigrants and abolishing immigration and customs enforcement altogether. The former president also uh, warned against creating a circular firing squad where progressives take an aim at allies who have uh, strayed from purity on the issue. The former president's remarks come with escalating border crisis um, uh, concerns. And as the president, uh, the current president pushes to secure the border with a surge of migrants uh, seeking asylum, not only from Central American countries, but from all around the world, 50 different uh, nations as the uh, Border Patrol indicated. Democrats have opposed a number of the president's proposals, especially his call for a wall at the southern uh, border, as well as changes to make it harder to claim asylum. Well, the uh, Trump administration is moving to end an agreement that allows Cuban baseball players to sign contracts directly with Major League Baseball clubs. That's a change that requires Cuban players to once again cut ties with the communist nation before signing a Major League deal. Last year, 25 Cuban-born players played in at least one Major League Baseball game. The Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control told Major League Baseball attorneys in a letter on Friday that it was reversing an Obama administration rule allowing the major leagues to pay the Cuban Baseball Federation a release fee equal to 25 percent of each Cuban player's signing bonus. The payment mechanism was similar to agreements that Major League Baseball players have with the leagues in China, South Korea and Japan. In exchange, the Cuban Federation had agreed to release all players age 25 and older with at least six years of professional experience. In the letter, which was made um, public Monday afternoon, the Treasury Department told uh, Major League Baseball that the payments to the Cuban Baseball Federation constituted illegal business with the Cuban government. That reverses a ruling made by the Obama administration allowing those payments. Well, U.S. law prohibits virtually all payments to the Cuban government under the 60-year embargo on the island but um, Major League Baseball argued the Cuban Baseball Federation, which oversees all aspects of the sports on the uh, on the island, was not formally a part of the Cuban state. Opponents call that argument ridiculous, given the tight control the highly regimented government maintains over virtually every aspect of life in Cuba. So that rule has now been or will soon be officially uh, reversed. Well, in an historic move uh, earlier this week, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the designation of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization. Well, this is the first time the U.S. has given the, des- the uh, designation to part of a government. Well, the designation will enable the U.S. to further ramp up sanctions against Iran's tyrannical regime under the administration's maximum pressure policy. The Revolutionary Guard Corps, and I think I may have called them 
Republican Guard yesterday. But anyway, is both the sword and the shield of Iran's Islamic revolution dating back to 1979. It's charged with attacking Iran's enemies overseas, supporting Iran's network of foreign terrorist proxies, crushing political opponents in Iran's revolutionary regime at home. Well, last week, the Pentagon released an updated assessment that blamed Iran's Revolutionary Guard for enabling Iraqi proxy forces to kill some 603 American servicemen in Iraq. That accounts for about 17 percent of the total deaths of U.S. personnel from 2003 to 2011. The Revolutionary Guard also controls Iran's ballistic missile program, military aspects of its nuclear program, and key portions of Iran's state-dominated economy. The designation as a foreign terrorist organization will become effective next Monday, at which time the U.S. government will gain additional tools for applying sanctions against the Revolutionary Guards and all foreign entities that do business with them, their subsidiaries and their front companies. This will allow U.S. sanctions to hit harder at strategic sectors of Iran's economy, since the Revolutionary Guard is extensively involved in Iran's oil, construction and defense industries. The CIA director in 2017, um, uh, Pompeo, uh, estimated that the Revolutionary Guard controlled about 20 percent of Iran's economy. So you can see how this will hit Iran hard. Well, these added sanctions will drain away resources that could be used to export terrorism, thus helping bolster the security of the U.S. and its allies. This will also benefit the Iranian people who are the chief victims of the Revolutionary Guard. Well, the new sanctions also will ratchet up pressure on foreign firms that continue to do business with Iran. Those firms could now face prosecution here in the United States for providing material support for terrorism if they engage in commerce with the Iranian entities affiliated with the Revolutionary Guard. Well, President Trump hammered this uh, point home in a White House statement uh, yesterday when he warned that if you're doing business with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, you will be bankrolling terrorism. He also made it clear that more Iran sanctions are coming, saying this action sends a clear message to Tehran that its support for terrorism has serious consequences. We will continue to increase financial pressure and raise the costs on the Iranian regime for its support of terrorist activities until it abandons its malign and outlaw behavior. Well, this added pressure on Iran's economy is sure to put greater stress on the Iranian regime, which already faces growing discontent from Iranians themselves. Well, the Trump administration hopes that stronger sanctions will compel Tehran to moderate its hostile policies or risk being overthrown by its people. So it wasn't just an empty, empty gesture. It uh, has the potential to have a major impact on Iran's economy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 48 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a request from President Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, to Democrats to help delay and reduce his upcoming three-year prison sentence set to begin in just weeks was rejected on Monday by House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. I don't get involved in sentencing matters as a practice, Schiff told CNN. I never have in Congress, and that's been my policy, end quote. Well, in a letter sent to lawmakers last week, Cohen's legal team said that he was still sorting through documents in his personal files that might be of interest to House Democrats investigating President Trump, including emails, voice recordings, images, and other documents on a hard drive. Wouldn't you want him for your attorney? And he's got all this stuff that he's willing to give up for you or on you. Uh, The letter was uh, sent to a series of Trump opponents, including Schiff and Representative Jerry Nadler of New York, Maxine Waters of California, Elijah Cummings of 
Maryland, all Democrats. To date, Mr. Cohen has located several documents that we believe have significant value to the various congressional oversight and investigation committees. His attorney, Lonnie Davis, Michael Monaco, and Carly um, Cochran wrote in a letter, well, despite the decision to remain uninvolved in his sentencing, Schiff told CNN on Monday that he was still open to hearing anything else that Cohen wanted to share. We continue to encourage Mr. Cohen to provide us any material that he has that uh, are relevant to the investigation, Schiff said. We'll continue to do so and hope that he has additional information to offer. Well, Cohen, who, of course, pled guilty uh, last year to tax evasion, fraud, lying to Congress and campaign finance violations, already has received one short delay on medical grounds while he recovered from a shoulder in, uh, injury and, of course, uh, has already testified before Congress. But new documents just keep you know, popping up. He's scheduled to report to prison on the 6th of May. Well, the vast majority of Americans don't think they got a tax cut from the 2017 Republican bill. Just 17 percent of people believe their own taxes will go down. And Republicans are the only group which uh, in which rather 30 percent or more believe they're getting a tax cut. Well, it's no wonder the 2017 Republican tax cut remains so unpopular. The vast majority of Americans don't think they got one at all. Well, as the annual IRS filing deadline of April 15th approaches, just 17 percent. By the way, I was so excited. I took my taxes in early to have them done. It's been a couple of weeks now. I was so proud of myself. I always wait till the very last possible moment because the whole thing is so unpleasant. So I took all my stuff in and Dan Rice retired in the fall. There are all these things now that I have to find and produce and that I didn't know anything about. And the amount that we're going to have to pay is staggering. I, I was shocked. Um, so I haven't gone back with all the additional information because I don't have it yet, but there was a tax cut and we'll explain that in just a minute. But anyway, as the annual IRS filing deadline of April 15th, let's see, this is the ninth. Oh dear. I've got work to do. It's approaching just 17% think their taxes will uh, go down. That's according to an NBC news, wall street journal poll by contrast, 28% believe they they'll pay more. 27% expect to pay about the same 28% don't know enough to say, well, that helps explain why the tax cut provided so little ballast for the GOP as Democrats recaptured control of the House in November's midterm elections. Well, there are other reasons, too, but this is certainly one of them. Pew Research polling last month found that the tax cut remains underwater politically, with 36 percent of Americans expressing approval and 49 percent disapproval. In reality, eight in 10 Americans stood to receive tax cuts in 2018 under the law. That's according to an analysis by the nonpartisan Tax Policy Center. Yet the cuts for most taxpayers are so small that many didn't even notice. The lowest uh, earning, uh, 60% of households stood to receive an average cut of uh, less than $1,000. Uh, then we'll spread that over 12 months. It doesn't seem like much. The top 1%, $51,000. In the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, that sense of missing out is nonpartisan. Just 33% of Republicans believe they're getting a tax cut, while an even punier 10% of independents, 7% of Democrats do. Across ages, genders, income groups, regions of the country and races, 25% or fewer say they're getting a tax cut. Republicans are the only group, as I mentioned, 30% um, believe they're actually getting a tax cut. Well, lower refunds don't mean Americans paid more taxes. In fact, quite the opposite says CBS News. Well, most workers paid less in taxes last year and saw higher take-home pay week in and week out. But for many Americans, a slightly higher paycheck doesn't quite have the same visibility as a single $3,000 check in March or April. Well, that visibility, the satisfying payoff of receiving a big check, is exactly why 
Uh, the CBS headline, uh, its story, tax refunds so far this year are down by $6 billion from 2018. Well, CBS did um, accurately report the numbers, but if all you read is the headline or if you didn't uh, make it past the first three paragraphs, you were grossly misled. With a tax filing deadline, you know, just days away, Americans will start to see many more stories like this one. Far too many Americans treat their tax refunds as a forced savings account for big purchases. CBS notes that while the average refund, $2,873, is only $20 less than it was last year, about 1.6 million fewer people are getting refunds at all. That means a dip in retail sales for items like appliances or furniture. Of course, just sticking your money in a low-yield savings account at a bank will earn you far better return than an interest-free loan to the federal government. Yet that's the insidious uh, nature of withholding from paychecks. People tend to overlook it. When the government has first dibs on your hard-earned money, it changes your behavior. And getting the withholding to match your actual tax obligation is really tough, so why bother? Just wait for the refund or what you may end up paying. As uh, Louis Dubrow uh, concluded in February in a column, while the GOP Trump tax cuts, which not a single Democrat voted for, have been a massive jumpstart to the economy, neither Trump nor Republicans can depend on a hostile press to really admit the truth. They've had to take this good news directly to the American people, which they haven't done very well, because most of the American people don't see that they've had one at all. Well, two major public sector unions lost nearly 210,000 agency fee payers combined in um, 2018, according to recent filings uh, showing the impact of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that prohibits forcing non-members to pay for collective bargaining and other non-political expenses. The American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees saw a 98 percent drop from a previous year, leaving 2,200 agency uh, fee payers. The Service Employees International Union lost 94% of their agency fee payers, reducing the number of uh, agency fee payers to 5,800. The disclosure reports uh, filed with the Labor Department last week provide an early snapshot of ramifications of the High Court's June 2018 ruling, Janus versus AFSCME, uh, which said mandatory agency fees in the public sector violate non-members' First Amendment rights. Agency fees typically amount to 75 to 85% of full union dues. Well, the two main public teacher unions similarly lost their fee payers following the ruling, according to government reports and union representatives. And while the immediate and near total exodus of fee payers from public sector unions was expected, the long-term impact of the Janus decision will likely be measured in how many members quit. The ruling allows public employees in unionized workplaces to benefit from collective bargaining without paying anything. Most agency fee payers left, said Patrick Wright, the vice president for legal affairs at the uh, Mackinac Center for Public Policy. It's a conservative advocacy group. The big question going forward is how many full members are going to join them. Well, the Mackinac Center is one of several conservative groups running campaigns urging public employees to consider dropping out of their unions. The early returns show little changes for AFSCME and SEIU membership numbers. Uh, AFSCME gained uh, by more than 9,000 non-retired members in 2018, about one in one percent rather gain over the previous year. The SEIU lost nearly 4,500 non-retired members, which represented a 0.3 percent drop. Well, a spokesperson for SEIU said in an email that the disclosure report show members are sticking together despite anti-worker extremists uh, spending millions to divide us. Well, you're not necessarily anti-worker if you are working and don't support 
the political aspirations of your union. Ask me, President Lee Saunders said in a press release that overwhelming numbers of members chose to stick with their union. The relatively small changes in these two organization memberships and the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court decision reflect the robust internal organizing campaigns and public sector unions. Says a researcher from the Economic Policy Institute that consults with unions, Jeffrey Keefe, uh, which is a more left-leaning group. Some unions may redirect resources away from internal organizing over the next few years. He said unionization rates among teachers are about 24 percent lower in states with collective bargaining that prohibit mandatory agency fees under the so-called right to work laws compared to rates in states that allowed such fees before Janice. So it's having some impact the long term. Uh, indication not altogether clear, but it certainly is making some difference. Well, Senator Cory Booker on Monday introduced a bill that would study the possibility of reparations for descendants of slaves, embracing a push that recently has caught the interest of fellow 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. The, sec- the uh, senator, rather, from New Jersey said Monday that this bill is a way of addressing head on the persistence of racism, white supremacy, the implicit racial bias of our country, which, by the way, we've been focused on through the Civil Rights Movement, the Great Society, and so many other programs that were designed for just that. He went on to say it will bring together the best minds to study the issue and propose solutions that will finally begin uh, to right the economic scales of past harms and make sure we are a country where all dignity and humanity are affirmed. Um, I'm not sure we have reached that goal with the programs that we've had thus far, and I'm not yet convinced that this one will do it, but we'll see what um, details. And there's been a version introduced in the House as well. All right, we're going to take a break here at the top of the hour in just a moment. Just a reminder, at about a quarter after the hour, we're going to talk with the executive director of Journey Theater. This is a theater that's been around. They're celebrating their 18th season. This is a theater for kids, by kids, and it is an impressive ministry. Uh, they're doing some pretty incredible things, not just in terms of performance, uh, but in, in ministering to these young people who are part of their extensive program. Stephen Pick, the executive director, will join me in the five o'clock hour news and traffic up next you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq well good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the georgine rice show james blend is producing clark hilton is engineering today's program later this hour in fact in our next segment we're going to talk with executive director stephen pick he's the director of journey theater they um, uh, provide live theater. They're changing lives. They're celebrating their 18th season of theater for kids, by kids, a really unique ministry that's having an impact on many, many young people in our community and their families. We'll talk with him about that uh, when he joins us in our next segment. <clears throat> well, there is apparently an alarming rise in children taken to the ER with suicidal thoughts or attempts, according to a new uh, study, the average age of the child sampled for data collection in this study was 13, but some 43% of those taken to the ER with suicidal attempts or tendencies were between 5 and 11. The number of children across the United States who've been taken uh, to the emergency room for suicidal attempts or thoughts has doubled since 2007, according to a new analysis. The report was published yesterday in JAMA Pediatrics the Journal of American Medical Association, and based on data extracted from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The nation's hospital ambulatory medical center survey concluded that diagnoses of suicide-related behavior of children aged between 5 and 18 burgeoned from 580,000 in 2007 to 1.12 million in 2015, marking an uptick of Uh, 2.17% of all visits 
to 3.5% in the um, eight-year period. Well, the average age of the child sampled for the data, as I mentioned, was 13, but those 5 to 11 made up uh, some uh, 43%. A trend of increased rates of suicide ideation and suicidal thoughts amongst the most precious of our society is more than alarming. It's also disheartening, says uh, Dr. Uh, Burkholder, who's a board-certified counselor. Now, I, I guess we shouldn't be altogether surprised. Our entertainment is... Um, is leads with violence. Uh, we have a culture that says the unborn have no value and an atheist society where your life has no core meaning. There is no God. There's no purpose beyond uh, what you make of it, where we're telling people they can do whatever they please. And young people don't know how to process that it's in their immaturity. I suppose it shouldn't be surprising at all. Uh, this article goes on to point out that the, while the causes of the chilling increase are hard to precisely pinpoint, medical professionals say the problem is varied but not entirely surprising. To think that the children are so stressed due to things like academic achievement, social stressors like social media and cyberbullying on the rise, combined with parents who are disconnected from their kids but plugged into their devices, it's no wonder we're seeing a rise in this in our emergency rooms. One uh, director at Body and Mind Medical Center in Chicago concurred that the new analysis um, signifies a multifaceted problem, that a problem he said is largely driven by isolation and inadequate health care system. Being on the uh, screens about 10 hours a day on average, excluding school, doesn't leave time to develop good communication skills and stress management skills that need, uh, they need for life. There's no time to build community and friendship and support systems and parents uh, relating to their kids. The other difficulty is that teenagers and young adults, and we're talking about children much younger than that, uh, when they need psychiatric or other help, it's uh, very hard to get mental health appointments in our health care system. Now, one would hope you wouldn't wait until they're teenagers or young adults that they're Uh, being uh, taught by parents and their needs being met in community, uh, which we'll be talking about uh, coming up in just a bit. But anyway, in addition, Florida-based Dr. Dina Grayson pointed out, kids are feeling more stress and pressures to succeed, which may come in part from increased stress felt by their parents uh, that is uh, passed on to their children. And the suicidal uh, struggles, rather, plaguing the young may very well continue to worsen. This is the landscape in which many young people Find themselves, And then I read this bit of an encouraging story. It was featured on CNN, but I read it in a mainstream uh, media site. A young boy who was uh, had suicidal ideation. He was thinking about uh, killing himself. He credits a Christian children's show with saving him from suicide. And if you're thinking about engaging in uh, vacation Bible school, you're going to make a commitment to work with kids in Sunday school. If you're thinking about doing something over the summer with kids in your neighborhood, you might find some encouragement in this. This 11-year-old boy who was addicted to violent video games for several years began to have depression and suicidal thoughts. I cried. I wanted to commit suicide, he said. His name is Min Viet. Uh, In the video games, they jump off the roof. So he had thought, that's what I'll do. His mother was uh, disturbed and she didn't know what to do, what else to do but to pray and to seek God. Her answer came in the form of a children's television program that caught his attention after it was shown to the kids at their church. Uh, The Christian Broadcasting Network's Superbook program that brings the Bible to life through animation came to Vietnam and was translated into their local language. He loves Superbook very much, his mother says. He's shifted from video games to Superbook. He understands more about the Bible, and sometimes he says to me he feels uh, he's very sinful, but God has saved him. He was touched by God. We're talking about a little 11-year-old. Min invites his friends to the Superbook classes, and uh, he told one of his friends, 
uh, who was also addicted to video games, to stop playing the games and join him for the uh, the cartoon program. Essentially, instead, the Christian Broadcasting Network uh, told uh, Fox News that millions of children have come to know Jesus uh, as their savior through this program. Superbook is currently available across many platforms in 46 languages with a worldwide audience of 160 million. Now, you and I as adults might see a program like that and think, what on earth difference could that make? You might think about a vacation Bible school for one week in your church parking lot and think, what on earth difference can that make? Or you might think I'm a Sunday school teacher or I'm an assistant and you know, there's not a whole lot that I can do, but what on earth difference could that make? Will it save this little boy's life, a cartoon program? And for those of us who care about kids and have some understanding of the challenges they face that differ so dramatically from many of the challenges previous generations face, those little investments can go a very long way. I hope you're praying for the kids in your neighborhood, in your family, in your Sunday school, in your church, wherever you might uh, come in contact with them. Well, here's another study during a three-year longitudinal study launched by the Fuller Youth Institute. A parent with three post-high school kids reflected on the changes she's witnessed over the years. I think if I were to go back and reparent, I actually would allow my kids more freedom in their high school years to explore and express their questions about faith, she says. Her instincts align with what teenagers need. According to a study which looked at 500 youth group graduates, over 70 percent of church uh, church going high schoolers report having serious doubts about faith. Sadly, less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or friend. The assumption was, hey, they're in youth group, they're in church, they must not have any serious questions or doubt. Yet these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts were actually correlated with the greater faith maturity. In other words, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith, it's silence. Researchers for the National Study for Youth and Religion discovered that young people have become inarticulate about their faith, often lacking the language to express their beliefs and convictions. Further exploration revealed another telling part of the story. So have their parents. Somehow young people and their parents have lost the ability to speak of faith in real life. You know, you're supposed to put it on your forehead and have it on the lintel and carry it along with you. Have a breastplate with it on so it's part of natural life. Like learning Mandarin as a young person, then forgetting it as an adult. Christian adolescents and emerging adults often become less fluent in faith over time. But faith needs to be talked about and processed. And if these conversations diminish as the kids get older, you miss opportunities to help them remain fluent. What we call faithing or the ongoing act of faith depends on practice and use uh, for it to become deeply part of us. It's uh, thoroughly uh, faithing that language, behaviors, beliefs and values are internalized. As we interact with parents nationwide, they confess that when it comes to discussing spirituality or faith, they're worried about saying the wrong thing and either messing up or revealing their ignorance. The good news for parents is we don't need to be theologians or super Christians to talk with our kids about our faith or theirs. We only need a willingness to be there. And then there was this. Protestant pastors aren't as concerned about religious liberty as they were just a few years ago amid high-profile cases challenging Christian convictions on abortion and marriage. But they increasingly feel the tension around whether and how to address hot-button moral and social issues out of concern for offending people. According to a comprehensive new religious freedom and pluralism report released by the Barna Group this year, nine out of ten Christian pastors say helping Christians have biblical beliefs about specific issues is a major part of their role as clergy. But they sense the pressure from all sides. Many express being subject to scrutiny from outside their congregations as well as from within. The stakes are high in the public square, the researchers wrote. The issues pastors feel most pressured to speak out on are the same ones they feel limited to speak on.
half of Christian pastors feel occasionally or frequently limited in their ability to speak out by concerns they will offend people. This is a challenging time. I wonder if we have the courage to live out our faith in it and to speak of our faith in it in a biblical way. 16 minutes after five up next, we'll talk with Stephen Pick. They're providing opportunities for young people. We'll talk about it in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm really looking forward to these next couple of segments because I get to share a friendship that uh, we established just a short while ago with Stephen Pick, who is executive director of Journey Theater. They produce live theater. They're changing lives. They're in their 18th season of theater. And this is kids producing stuff it's by kids and for kids. We'll explain all of that in just a moment. But Stephen Pick is executive director. He's a Vancouver native and Journey alumnus, which is an interesting twist. He recently returned home after three years in Boston, where he was teaching, directing, and completing his Master's of Fine Arts degree and Arts Administration certification. Stephen was part of the first season of Journey shows back in 2003, and experiencing theater for the first time in Journey instigated his love for the arts. He went on to complete degrees in theater at George Fox University and Boston University, as well as co-found and run a nonprofit, Valley Repertory Theater. He brings his experience and training of to Journey uh, that helps form him as a, a youth, and that's kind of an interesting connection that he has had. Well, Stephen and his wife have been married about eight years. They have two little girls, and we're just delighted to have you here in studio. I think it's been Many years since we've had anyone from Journey on, so I'm so delighted to have you uh, talk about what uh, Journey is all about here today. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, it, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, thing to think about the arts and how gifted all of us are, but how few of us develop some of the talents and gifts that we have. I think about going to high school, you do a little theater perhaps, but then there are a few opportunities to express that moving forward. Let's talk about Journey Theater and how it helps young people to recognize and develop gifts that they have. But it also does some other deep work in the hearts of kids. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the one of the things about Journey that, um, you know, we always say is the theater, the art piece of it is so important, but it's also the vehicle for the greater work that's being done. Mm-hmm. Right. So the character development is something that we're really interested in in as a Christian organization, you know, not just um, the character that is in the play. Right. But also the character of the individual um, of the of the student, of the parents as well, um, that we get to experience a community together that's built on a foundation of integrity, humility. You know, it's it's counter to all the things that can happen in a theater environment mm-hmm. where someone wants to be on at center stage or you know, wants to have the leading role. Um, rather, the focus for us is about mentorship um, to the next generations um, and then the next age age down and how um, each of us can grow in collaboration in a community. And that's such a challenge today when uh, individualism is such an important part of our culture to encourage and challenge and help young people develop the capacity to work in collaboration with yeah. one another, to encourage one another to acknowledge and celebrate the gifts and talents that others have while at the same time using your own and developing them. That's exactly right. And, and not only is it collaboration, um, which, is, which is becoming or can become rare, but it's also face-to-face interaction. Mm-hmm. And in a world where it's so, uh, we become so isolated so easily, um, so, so rich and so wealthy and yet so maybe unhappy even, 
um, because of our of uh, the isolation we experience. Um, loneliness, anxiety, depression, all of those things are on the rise, even for youth. And I think when we think about uh, a place like Journey and other places that do similar work, that's the real problem, yeah. right? That we are able to provide for 700 kids a year, and maybe next year 800, maybe 900, uh, 700 kids a year in, in four different areas have a chance to have a community that supports them. And that's, you know, doctors are saying, we, we could deal with anxiety. We could deal with suicide uh, if we had community. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we talked about that a little bit earlier in the program today. Let's talk about how Journey began and uh, just ex- explain how the program works. Sure. Yeah. So Journey began actually as a branch or a franchise of Christian Youth Theater, which is a, a company out of San Diego and has national locations. Um, about, uh, I think, eight, I'm a little fuzzy, I think, eight, about eight years ago, um, a journey decided, the, the Vancouver branch uh, decided not to renew that contract. It got too complicated and financially was difficult to, to see how we could continue uh, paying, paying overhead fees to a, an umbrella organization. So rebranded, didn't renew the contract, rebranded as Journey. But it's the same people, it's the same program, same heart um, that ha- has always been mm-hmm. and that I experienced as a, as a youth. Um, so Bethany Larson uh, is the founder of the Vancouver area and still on staff. She's she sits next to me all day long, and um, it just has such a heart for um, kids and for the arts and for God and what the combination of all of those things can be uh, in a in a program like Journey. So she's she's still here. She's still doing it. I think about Mickey Rooney and. Um and, uh, oh, what's her name? Let's put on a show. Mm. What you do isn't just getting kids together. Okay, we've decided we're going to do this play, and uh, we're going to cast uh, several of you to, to do the parts. This is much more than that. Can you explain how the program works, that there are classes that help develop and identify this, the skills that these kids have that uh, result in an actual production? But that's, that's the end piece. That's not the end all. That's right. Yeah, so the way it works is we have fall, winter, and spring sessions. Eight-week class sessions. It's a weeknight, um, each of those terms. And then there's productions that coincide, fall, winter, and spring, typically. And then we do camps and week-long camps for teens and youth over the summer as well. But the way that it works is we kids take classes in acting, singing, dancing. And again, this is ages 8 to 18 for the shows. And they can start as early as 6 uh, for classes. And uh, the shows, we primarily do musicals, uh, a lot, big casts. So we will have 40 to 60 to 70 students in uh, a cast of any given production. And um, they'll take classes that are exciting for them, right? So whether it's acting, singing, dialects, uh, stage combat, um, different uh, specific techniques like tap dance. And um, then the shows will feature and bring, bring things out on that. It's audition. They audition for the shows. Um, and we, we pay um, local talent to direct, choreograph, music direct. And so they, they, put out, they do a pretty good job. They, yeah. they do some good work. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned, you, um, or you're an alumnus of, of Journey. Tell us a little bit about how you came to Journey and what that experience was like for you. Coming back uh, as... No, as a youngster as when a young, you, became, sure. you were part of the program. Sure. Yeah. So I watched, I watched a show. My story is very typical, actually. I saw a play... Uh, I think it was the first or second play that Journey did, and I said, well, "That's that looks amazing. I'd love to to try that out." I had never done any theater really to speak of, and uh, I auditioned for a production, got in a class, and um, just fell in love with the community that uh, embraced and brought me right in and said, "Yeah, you you're welcome here. You're safe. 
you can be crazy and wild. You can grow in your confidence and uh, be who you are. You can wear your crazy hats or whatever. And um, so I was in the program for about three years before college. I, I found it later in my mm-hmm. life. So I, I, but, but enough to form my perspective on what the real value of the arts is, and that is um, teamwork, collaboration with, with peers, and working towards a common goal. Um, in fact, later I, I explained I had a mid-grad school crisis uh, in Boston where I realized, though I was poised and ready to go to New York and go to do these, these big productions, um, I realized that, you know, the really, for me, I don't do theater for the people that come to see it as much as I do it for those I do it with. Mm-hmm. And so it's that, uh, you know, working together with other actors or as a director with uh, those that I'm trying to teach and help them do their best work. And uh, that's what's, what the real reward is. And I think that's what Journey uh, offers. So to come back to an organization that um, still does the same great work that I remember being shaped by as a student is such a blessing. Mm. And what you described isn't always the case. When you put on a theater production, it isn't always the case that working together with other people is a joyous and pleasant experience. (laughs) That has to be a deliberate effort on the part of those who are engaged in that process. And that's one of the things that uh, I think distinguishes Journey from other opportunities that young people might do. That is intentional. Mm. And including young people and encouraging them uh, in that uh, in that production that is the sort of the end result of some of the training they've had is uh, is quite remarkable. And you, again, we're talking about young people from eight to eighteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to. I think one of the thing that things that makes that possible is the culture of the organization, and and a key factor in that, and what makes us, I think, unique from a lot of programs is the parent involvement. So for uh, each of the students that's uh, auditions and is cast in a production. One of their parents or family guardians, family member uh, signs is required to sign up for a committee, and so they're helping sew costumes, they're helping build sets or hang up po- uh, you know flyers or run the box office, and that allows a, a number of things. It allows um, a family atmosphere for one, where those parents are able to say, "Look what I get to be a part of with my child," mm-hmm. and how rare that is. Mm-hmm. I'm not just dropping them off. I'm not just checking out. I get to build something with. Johnny, you know, and and how valuable then it is for that student to say, my parent cares so much that they're going to put in all these hours and maybe they don't even recognize the amount. So I think that adds to the the ability to create and cultivate a culture where people can thrive and people are encouraged um, and to to overcome, you know, adversity and sadness, too, when the cast list comes out and you didn't get the role you wanted, that there's teaching opportunities built in to grow, uh, grow character. And, um, yeah, I think the parents are a huge component of that. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about journey theater. We do need to take a break, but we'll be back in a moment. I should mention there's some upcoming shows in May. Godspell is going to be presented. Uh, also in May, Alice in Wonderland, a new musical, a wrinkle in time that's faithful to the story as it was intended. Uh, that's also in May through early June and uh, a year with frog and toad, uh, coming up late in May and early June as well. We're talking this afternoon with Stephen Pick. He's executive director of Journey Theater. We'll tell you more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Stephen Pick. He's executive director of Journey Theater. It's a group that encourages and inspires youth to grow into and embrace who God designed them to be. They provide professional, quality school year musicals exclusively cast with kids ages 8 to 18. More than 600 area youth conduct about 100 performances to bring joy to more than 25,000 ticket holders every year. The cast and crew and production committees are 100% volunteer, and it really is an amazing thing to consider what all you um, are able to do through the course of the year. And then you have community theater, I believe, in the summer as well. That's right. Yeah, we do. um, In addition to the youth programming that they get, that students ages 6 to 18 get to work together throughout the year, we provide an additional opportunity in the summers where we invite adults, adults into that process as well and say, you know, let's open this up to the whole community and what can the youth learn by uh, partnering and dancing alongside uh, maybe maybe their parents or maybe other people from the community that have some skills to share. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us about some of the classes that are being offered at the various locations, Vancouver, Portland, Beaverton. That's right. Yeah, so we, we offer uh, classes year-round, fall, winter, spring, and uh, you're right, it's two, two areas in Vancouver, uh, Portland and then out in Beaverton. And uh, it's classes in dancing, singing, acting, and um, dialects, Let's see, uh, character building, uh, both on stage and off stage, right? Um, but also um, some some specialty classes too, in you know very specific dance skills or singing a solo or um, how to um, read read music even. And um, so those those classes build on each other in, mm-hmm. in in a curriculum format. There's some prerequisites and all of that kind of thing, so you can go through. Uh, the program over many years and many sessions and continue to build on your skills. Now, you mentioned that um, there are performances during the summer, but during the school year, how does that fit in with a a child's academics? Yeah, so it's uh, it's usually one night a week, um, mostly Mondays, Tuesdays or Thursdays. So depending on the area. So Mm -hmm. it's a one night, uh, 6.30 to 8.15, and it runs for eight weeks. And sometimes there's a break if there's a holiday or a dress rehearsal for a production that we need to take off. Um, so it's a pretty, it's a relatively low impact as far as an extracurricular activity, um, easy to get to. Um, you drop the kid off, your kid off for uh, the two hours and go grocery shopping or hang out with another parent that you've met and um, then then pick them up. Um, then the productions are what kind of takes you more into mm-hmm. um, the the involvement uh, as far as the parents. Side. I posted a video on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. I think it's Jeremy talking about his experience mm. and how he started out relatively shy. He wasn't certain how he was going to be received by the other uh, child performers who were in classes and so on. And just he talks about the kind of transformation mm. he experienced personally and how that has uh, help to shape his character. And this is what you've said about your experience as well. For parents who have young people who might be interested in doing this, what do you say to a parent of a child who's relatively shy mm-hmm. or a little concerned, you know, how how is my son or my daughter who doesn't necessarily have um, obvious gifts or talents in, in the arts, how might they fit in or be received by others? Yeah, that's a great question. And we find very often that Jeremy's experience does happen mm-hmm. for a lot of students. It's it's almost the sh- the most shy students, the shyest, right? That uh, flourish the most, or those who are obviously born for the stage. You know, they'll they'll go do it. But we find uh, in that in those extremes a lot of growth. Um, I would say the best starting point uh, to try out the organization and and see if uh, your student, your child, 
is uh, interested in this would be through the summer camps because it's a week-long day camp. Um, very often there's a performance at the end where the, your student will be singing and dancing on stage with others. And um, so it's a week-long experience where your child can really get the sense of the full training but also performance opportunity mm-hmm. and see if it's, if it's something that's for them. Um, so we have summer camps running in Beaverton, Hillsborough, Clackamas, and Vancouver all throughout the summer, I think starting in late June. And um, so that's a great way, I think, just to test it out and, and get your feet wet as a, as a student. Well, we're talking about journey theater. Uh, the goal is to grow character, confidence, and creativity in a Christ-centered community. One of the, I think, features of uh, journey is that it's a very welcoming environment if there's a, a young person who is not a believer, whose family doesn't have a church background, do they fit into the classes or the performances that you've been describing? Definitely. Yeah, it's, that's one of the things that we, we continually work to make um, uh, just seamless. Uh, you know, it's, we, we come from a faith perspective and we value that and want uh, students to have uh, access to the stories of the staff and whoever that, that have had um, experiences with Jesus and, and how it shapes their life. But there is no requirement uh, by anybody to uh, ascribe to any p- particular religion or doctrine or anything like that. So it's it's open, it's welcoming, it's safe, and we work really hard to keep it that way. Mm. Now, there's an opportunity for our listeners to learn more about uh, Journey, a benefit uh, dinner that's coming up in May. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're calling it an evening spectacular because we'll be featuring actually 30 plus of our youth who will sing and dance and really show uh, the community who, who attends what we do. There's one thing to just talk about it and there's one thing to, to show you. Well, this is what we do. Um, and so we're just excited for the opportunity to share the story of Journey and, and the impact of God's work through the program for the last 18 years and it. It's um, it's profound. I mean, the story you mentioned from Jeremy is just one of so many. Mm-hmm. So we'll have we'll have current speaker, uh, current student speaking, uh, a parent, uh, current parent uh, speaking, and then an alum as well. And really, it's uh, so it'll be at Oaks Park uh, on uh, May fifth, uh, from five to eight. And if someone's interested in learning more and uh, wanting to partner with a ministry that is doing some exciting work for our youth and the next generations, uh, I would invite you to to come or to to check it out. It's um, journeytheater.org and under, under the events tab you just look for an evening spectacular and, and uh, register and we'll, we'll be in touch with you. Well I have to say um, I get the opportunity to MC this year and I am so looking forward to the performances that will be uh, dotted throughout the evening and hearing from these uh, young people, their parents and so on because we're so often looking for opportunities for young people to grow and thrive in a mm-hmm. healthy environment And this is that kind of healthy environment where they are nurturing adults and peers Mm. who are welcoming to them, whatever their their skill level is, whatever their background, they are welcomed into this community uh, and uh, their their gifts and talents are encouraged and developed. And what a what a rare opportunity it is in the 21st century. Yeah, we're excited to have you and we're going to try to get you to sing somehow. (laughs) (laughs) I better warm up. Yeah, you better have (laughs) Well, again, this is an evening spectacular. It's a benefit for a Journey Theater, a great opportunity to learn more about who they are and what they do. There's going to be dinner, live entertainment from these young people you won't want to miss. And again, that's Sunday, May the 5th from 5 to 8 p.m. at Oaks Park. 
uh, Dance Pavilion. And what a great place to hold an event like this uh, where you feature and showcase some of um, some of the young people. Now, before we finish our conversation, I want to give you an opportunity to invite our listeners uh, to become a part, whether that is as an adult that supports the ministry or a young person who's looking for something uh, to do. You know, sports is is one option, but not every kid is a, you know, is a sportsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe uh, the arts is more the bent of your child, and this is a great opportunity for them. So just invite our listeners uh, who might uh, think, yeah, this might be a good fit. Yeah, and again, I would emphasize, that, as I did at the beginning, that uh, the goal is not to turn uh, every student into a theater performer mm-hmm. or a singer or a dancer uh, or have, go on to have a career in the arts. That happens to some. It happened to me. But it's not necessarily, uh, it's definitely not the focus, right? The goal is to create and cultivate, I guess, an embracing environment, a place that uh, people can thrive and just really be known and really um, pour into each other and also have an opportunity to um, be mentored and to mentor, right? I think there's something really unique about 18-year-olds and 8-year-olds in the same rehearsal room together, Mm -hmm. right, where you have... So often you'll have, um, we're segregated or we're separate, right, depending on our age or different demographics. But here we're able to see, hey, look at that 17-year-old boy over there uh, just on his own going to mentor and going to just make sure that that new nine-year-old is included and bringing them back into the group or the conversation around and in the break break time or things like that. So it's it's a really unique opportunity that I would invite if someone is is interested in just trying it out. Again, I would say summer camps is a great mm-hmm. way to try that out. We have opportunities for teens as well as for younger students. So there's there's really um, uh, a lot of different ways to get involved. And, and for parents or uh, grandparents or um, others who want to support the ministry, I would say um, come, come see a performance, come see a, a, one of our spring shows or come see Newsies uh, near the end of summer. And there's so many ways to get involved with uh, the work that God is doing in this. I mean, we're a nonprofit, so we, we you know, rely also on um, generous giving. And that's something that uh, we're really looking to, to ramp up because it feels like God is doing something big. I, I don't know what it is, <laughs> um, but it feels like it's, it's, um, he's preparing us and preparing our hearts for something new uh, in this in the season to come. So. Well, you have a great reputation as an organization. You've laid the groundwork of integrity, and I think parents will be thrilled to know that this is an, an option available to them and their family. Once again, you can find out more on the website, journeytheater.org. Go to the events tab, and you can get details for their event that's coming up on Sunday, May the 5th, 5 o'clock uh, to 8 o'clock p.m. at Oaks Park Dance Pavilion um, in uh, here in Portland. And you can also phone 360 360- Seven five zero eight five five zero. Again, that number is three six zero seven five zero eight five five zero. Well, thank you so much for joining me here in studio today. I look forward to May the 5th, and I hope some of our KPDQ listeners will join us. I hope so, too. <laughs> thank thanks, you. Thanks for having me. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we'll wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Cardinal Robert Sarah, the Vatican's prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, is warning the West that it's in grave danger due to mass migration. He says, and I quote, Islam will invade the world and completely change culture, anthropology and moral vision. He says, unless Westerners reclaim our cultural heritage. Well, in an interview that was published by the Catholic Herald UK, uh, Cardinal Sarah 
Uh, he talked about his new book, Evening Draws Near and the Day is Nearly Over, and explained, quoting from that to publication, the spiritual crisis involves the entire world, but its source is in Europe. People in the West are guilty of rejecting God. They have not only rejected God, Frederick Nietzsche, who may be considered the spokesperson for the West, who has claimed God is dead, God is dead, God remains dead, and uh, we have killed him. Now, Nietzsche himself is dead. I want to declare that God is very much alive. Anyway, he goes on to write that we have murdered God. In view of God's death among men, Nietzsche would replace him with a prophetic superman. Well, the spiritual collapse thus has a very Western character. In particular, I would like to emphasize the rejection of fatherhood. Our contemporaries are convinced that in order to be free, one must not depend on anybody. There is a tragic error in this. Western people are convinced that receiving is contrary to the dignity of human persons. But civilized man is fundamentally an heir. He receives a history, a culture, a language, a name, a family. This is what distinguishes him from the barbarian. To refuse to be inscribed within a network of dependence, heritage, and filiation condemns us to be back naked into the jungle of a competitive economic uh, left and uh, to its own devices. Because he refuses to acknowledge himself as an heir, man is condemned to the hell of liberal globalization in which individual interests confront one another without any law to govern them besides profit at any price. Well, in the book, however, I want, he goes on to say, to suggest to Western people that the real cause of this refusal to claim their inheritance and this refusal of fatherhood is the rejection of God. From him we receive our nature as man and woman. This is intolerable to modern minds. Gender ideology is a Luciferian refusal to receive a sexual nature from God. Thus, some rebel against God and pointlessly Uh, mutilate themselves in order to change their sex. But in reality, they do not fundamentally change anything of their structure as man or woman. The West refuses to receive and will uh, accept only what is uh, it constructs for itself. Transhumanism is the ultimate avatar of this movement because it is a gift from God. Human nature itself becomes unbearable for Western man. End quote. Well, in short, leftists are working to destroy exactly the things that made the West successful, which is going to have dire consequences for real people all over the world. It's uh, certainly worth uh, considering. Um, again, the book is titled um, Evening Draws Near and the Day is Nearly Over, written by Cardinal Robert Serra, the Vatican's prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, putting into context the rejection by the West of the fundamentals of the Christian faith and biblical doctrine. Well, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Larry Gadbaugh. He is the executive director of First Image, and they oversee as one of the ministries the pregnancy resource centers of the Portland metro area. I recently received a newsletter from uh, Larry Gadbaugh, and it outlined four changes that are happening at First Image. And I thought I'd pass those along to you. They're continuing with their uh, pregnancy resource center work. They're continuing uh, with the, um, the heart program and other ministries that reach out to young people in schools across the metro area. But we'll give Larry an opportunity to explain some of the uh, changes that we can anticipate that have already taken place and that will shape the, uh, the way First Image moves forward into the future. So looking forward to uh, talking with Larry on Wednesday. We're also looking forward to, and we're working on some scheduling on this, uh, talking with Steve Cleary uh, regarding Pilgrim's Progress, the movie. It's only going to be shown in theaters two days in April. We'll uh, give you the details on those dates and how to acquire tickets, although they're filling up fast. But this is a faithful adaptation 
of the um, uh, the epic Pilgrim's Progress, um, John Bunyan's uh, work that has influenced many generations. And this is a contemporary way of telling the story that is faithful to its uh, storyline. Uh, so Steve Cleary will join us tomorrow. I'm hoping we can make that uh, that work to tell you more about it. And then on Thursday, Africa New Life will join me here in studio. And as you probably are aware, their focus uh, for us is going to be food. In fact, the phrase or the, the, uh, the idea that food is for you and I, it's just another meal. But in Rwanda, where they do their uh, work, food is so much more than that. And we're going to talk about ways in which um, we can come alongside Africa New Life, as many of you have in years past, to help them provide that fundamental foundational resource that provides opportunity for so many other things. So they'll be with me in studio on Thursday, and I would encourage you to prayerfully consider how you might come alongside and help them. You can also go to kpdq.com for more information, and there you can find the details that may make it um, helpful for you in deciding uh, how and uh, if you're going to contribute to that effort. Want to encourage you to be a part of a, a comedy night, the Girls' Night Out, that's being featured uh, here by the women of KPDQ and the Fish. It's sponsored by Best Day Ever, our new podcast, and it's an opportunity for uh, we to, uh, we girls to get together with um, Amy Barnes. Have a great night of laughter and reflection. There'll also be uh, an opportunity afterwards for some coffee, tea, some uh, light uh, pastries and so on. That's coming up on Friday, May the 3rd, 7 o'clock p.m. at Tigard Christian Church. Now, tickets are on sale right now. General admission is $20 a ticket. And if you invite your girlfriends, groups of five or more can save $5 off each ticket. So keep that in mind. Again, presented by The Best Day Ever, the new podcast for from the women of KPDQ and the Fish. And you can find out more at kpdq.com. All the details are there, and you can purchase your tickets. Also, someone reminded me that we're just uh, we're approaching Easter, and it's coming more quickly than I had uh, actually given thought to it. But uh, the Good Friday Breakfast, which is uh, celebrating the 13th annual Good Friday Breakfast, is hosted this year, as was the case last year, by the YMCA of Columbia, Willamette, putting Christ back in the YMCA. Now, that's coming up on Friday, April the 19th. That's Good Friday, 7 a.m. at the Oregon Convention Center. The Good Friday Breakfast will feature keynote speaker John O'Leary. We had an opportunity to talk with him here on the program, and what a delight he is. What a difficult story he has to tell, but how he gives glory to God through it all. A very painful, uh, prolonged season in his young life is going to inspire you, and uh, it's just a very powerful uh, story. So that's coming up on Friday April the 19th, 7 o'clock a.m. at the Oregon Convention Center. And you will be, uh, I think they they have it so that you're out uh, 8.30-ish and uh, you'll have time to get to where you need to go. But it's just a great way to kick off uh, the weekend as we anticipate celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For tickets or more information, once again, you can go to kpdq.com. That's also true to learn more about the Amy Barnes Comedy Show coming on uh, May the 3rd. That's a Friday at Tigard Christian Church. And uh, also our Gospel Sing Live uh, tickets are available at kpdq.com there as well. It's the largest festival of Southern Gospel music in our area. So check that out. Want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.